Last month, the notorious paedophile Sidney Cook was blasted into space to spend the rest of his life aboard a one-man prison vessel, posing no further threat to children on Earth. But it was revealed that an eight-year-old boy was also placed on board by mistake and is now trapped alone in space with the monster. A spokesman said, this is the one thing we didn't want to happen. Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Aris Benedict, and with me today is our producer, Matt Keeley. Dark humor is great, but it's really hard to pull off. If you get it right, it's amazing. If you get it wrong, it's completely horrible. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how to do dark humor without sounding like a total sociopath. I've watched and read a lot of dark humor, and while there's not a perfect cut-and-dried formula for what works and what doesn't, I've noticed that successful dark humor usually contains most of the following elements. 1. A coherent point of view. What is your relationship to this topic? Who are you, the joke teller, to weigh in on this? Are you an observer? Are you a member of the community you're making fun of? And what role does the audience play here? A coherent point of view is an essential part of dark humor. 2. A well-chosen target. If you're just flinging crap in all directions, it's probably not going to work. Ask yourself who you're really attacking here, and why. 3. Something to say. Edginess and shock value aren't enough. Really effective dark humor often has a point. 4. A sense of absurdity. The situation is close enough to home to be relatable and disturbing, but weird enough to allow us the distance to laugh at it without hating ourselves. And five, a heart. Effective dark humor often has a surprising amount of empathy for people who are suffering, and a genuine sense of right and wrong, but without being too preachy and moralistic. So, let's take a look at a few examples of dark comedies and see how these elements work. Let's start by talking about Heathers, a 1980s teen comedy about school shootings. Heathers is an amazing movie. You owe it to yourself to watch it if you haven't already. It is brilliant, and even though it's, oh my god, 30 years old, it's still incredibly fresh and just brilliant, 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 brilliant. It's one of my favorite movies. Mine too. Uh, it's one that I have seen pretty much on repeat when I was growing up. It was I had the VHS and I, I practically wore that thing out. Absolutely. Now let's look at number one, point of view. What's the point of view in Heathers? Who are we meant to identify with? What what view are we taking here? Uh it mainly looks at like Veronica is our core character. She's a misfit teen who's found herself in along the popular clique and has thrown her old friends off to the side like Betty. And yes, Betty and Veronica is indeed intentional, as is their last name, Sawyer and... uh Finn. Betty Finn and Veronica Sawyer, like, like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. They were meant to be this, like, perfect friendship. Like, they were soulmates, almost. And I believe we also find out that previously she was friends with... Uh, Martha Dunstock, aka Martha Dumptra, the uh, heavy set victim of a lot of abuse hurled at her from the uh, titular Heathers as well as other folks in the school. Now, Veronica, she's a character who's smart and stylish. She kind of sees herself as being above this whole system, this cruel caste system of, of 1980s high school popularity. But at the same time, she still is a part of it. She still is kind of complicit in the system. 
And I think that's very true to who this movie's aimed at. It's aimed at teens who probably feel misfit and probably feel like, oh, I'm so much smarter than all these other kids. But they're still kind of a part of it. And it's also very telling, too, that Veronica, like the audience, really kind of sees herself as superior to this whole system. But as the movie goes on, we realize she's really not. She's really not that much better than other people, which is a very interesting thing that I think suggests a little bit of self-examination uh, for the audience. Okay, moving on for element two, the target. What or who is the target of Heathers? And hint, it's not really the bad popular girls, the Heathers. It's about society, man. <laughs> it, but I, it, it is. It's the uh, the caste system of high school society. The you know the Heathers at the top. Then the what what is the list? The the jocks, wastoids, chuds, uh, diet cokeheads, diet cokeheads. <laughs> they're somewhere. You know, but, but, but yeah, it's, it's, those are the cast and you do have, you know, the, the Diet Coke heads are probably above some of the chuds and the jocks are probably right behind the Heathers really in top, in terms of the top. And you probably have, you know, Martha Dunstock at the bottom and the other people like her that she's kind of the, emblem of. And I think it's worth noting, again, that it's not exactly the people in the system that are the target so much as the system itself. And we see that in the movie as these, as a couple of instances, there is a character who at the beginning was actually pretty nice and pretty in innocent, but who's completely warped by their role in this horrible caste system, which is a pretty great metaphor for, again, the larger sense of human society. All right, so let's look at three. Three, something to say. This movie has a lot to say. There's way too much to say. We could talk for hours about everything that the Heathers has to say, but what it's saying is that there's tremendous violence inherent in this social system we have. Sexism, the movie talks about rape culture, homophobia, ableism. I mean, they didn't use the word fat phobia back then, but the movie sure talks about it. And just, just this general cruelty, the general wickedness of hierarchy itself. Even without counting uh, Martha Dunstock, or there's one of the Heathers that is shown as having an eating disorder. Right. And her friends just kind of go along with it. One of them even helps her vomit and helps her hold her hair back. It's absolutely horrifying. Yeah, because it's better than being fat. Right. <laughs> or again, when uh, JD says that the uh, the jocks he kills, he even says that they had nothing to offer other than... Uh, Date rape and AIDS jokes. Thank you. But there's this larger extension of violence that goes beyond the high school itself, like this rich, rich neighborhood, this rich community they're living in. Can't help but produce a system like that. Like we briefly meet... JD's father and he's this horrible man. He's a demolition expert who works for some scumbag real estate company and his job is just basically blowing up beautiful historical buildings so that some Donald Trump type asshole can build fucking condos and shit over it. So of course a society that's that superficial and, and selfish and cruel and greedy is going to produce like little kid monsters. Mm -hmm. Yeah and I mean it even implies that uh, JD's dad killed his mom. Oh yeah well I mean not intentionally but the mom committed suicide that 
way. She walked into a building that JD's dad was going to blow up, knowing full well what was going on. It's so dark and it's so, so good. Now, number four, absurdity. This one's a little tricky because, believe it or not, Americans, back in the 80s, uh, the idea of school shootings wasn't normal. Like, that wasn't a thing that happened over and over again every couple of weeks. I know there had been school shootings before, but this was pre-Columbine, so the idea of people, of high school students, shooting up their schools regularly? Ah, oh, that's nuts. So at the time, this premise was absurd. It's not so absurd now. But the movie, because of how very, very 1980s it is, has sort of become retroactively absurd. I mean, you just watch it, the slang, the giant hair, the weird 80s fashion, the fact that teachers could smoke in the teacher's lounge, that was wild, makes it bizarre and absurd so that even though it's about this topic that's still, that's in, more close to us than ever, unfortunately, there's still this level of distance. It's still wacky and ridiculous enough for us to laugh about it without totally hating ourselves. And of course, visually too, it's very, uh, heightened stylistically. Like, the heathers are color-coded. The sets are very meticulously staged. The visuals are kind of surreal in their mundanity. Absolutely. It, I like, there's nothing out of the ordinary per se in terms, like, there's no, I don't know, I, I, I just watched a thing on Eraserhead, so there's no dead plants that are just in piles of dirt or anything like that, but everything is just heightened just enough to be a little off. Right. There's the very amazing funeral scene where the parents are burying their two sons who are these awful high school football jocks and the sons are wearing their football helmets in the coffins. And the dad stands up and screams, I love my dead gay son! And it's absolutely bizarre and horrifying, but just weird enough to be funny. It just puts this just enough of a layer between you and the subject matter to be funny. And I and I don't know if this is as common anymore, but but I know that especially in schools, there's kind of a tendency to be a little Pollyanna-ish when something bad happens. Right. And that is all over Heathers with teenage suicide, don't do it. Which is like totally catchy and right. you know, teenage suicide don't do it. And the idea that this song, like, hey, don't kill yourselves, is, like, actually really going to stop someone from killing themselves. It's like, oh, wow, the song said not to. I'd better not. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's addressing the, the thinnest layer of the outside of the problem. <laughs> right. And honestly, it still holds up now with, I mean, we have woke brands tweeting about mental health awareness and shit. Like, oh, Arby's talked about depression. That's really going to make a huge difference. I mean, if you're eating Arby's, you're well aware of depression, okay? <laughs> that is the official brand of having a depressive episode. You're no, no non-depressed person is going to eat Arby's, but oh god, if it, it's so perfectly relevant still today. There wasn't like a, any such thing as social media back then, but there were still these sorts of campaigns where some person who's real desire is to just promote themselves and make themselves sound special. It says, hey, everyone, let's just kind of hold hands and trade energy and that'll fix this deep rot somehow. <laughs> hands across America. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For our younger listeners, that was a real thing. 
<laughs> that was the thing. It wasn't just an us. They didn't just make it up. <laughs> okay. So let's move on to number five, Heart. This movie, even though it's very dark, I mean, it's about high school kids murdering each other. It really does have a heart. There's this real sense of empathy for the sensitive outcasts, for the people left behind by this cruel system, like uh, Martha Dump Truck, the, the really heavy set girl that everybody's just absolutely vicious to. They're the geeky kids that get beat up. One of the Heathers wears yellow and she's so depressed she becomes suicidal at one point. And JD's mom, too. She's this woman who was sensitive. It sounds like, from what we know of her, she was this sensitive, thoughtful woman who just couldn't survive mentally in this horrific, superficial, greedy, monstrous society. She couldn't handle it. And there are characters that are fucking awful, and like the two date-rapey jock guys, well, there's not a lot of empathy for them, but... We still get reminded that they had a family. There's a there's a little bit in one of the funeral scenes where JD's telling a joke and then Veronica starts laughing and then we see that one of them had a little sister who's crying and then all of a sudden like, oh, this joke isn't very funny anymore. This isn't great. And there's even a sense of pity for the big bad main Heather, the main villain of the movie. There's a party scene where we see her engage in a sex act, and it's very clear she really doesn't want to do this, but she's going to go through with it because that's what's expected of her socially. That is what is expected of someone with her social role in, in this little society. And we see that she hates herself later because after going down on this asshole college kid that she doesn't even like, she rinses out her mouth in front of a mirror and just spits all over her own reflection and is just miserable. And the movie takes pains to show how even decent, likable people are turned into monsters by this ugly system. It would have been really easy for a movie like this to just point and laugh at, look at these dumb teenagers, look at these jerks, but it would have been such a weak movie for it. And really, what they're really saying here is, look, this high school shit, this is a microcosm for society. And the adult world is just as shallow and cruel and ugly. We are these kids. And we probably always will be these kids. God help us. The best dark comedy, and, and I, I definitely uh, consider Heather as one of the best dark comedies, really do function like a mirror, as does all good satire. I mean, it's Maybe a slightly funhouse smear in terms of reflecting things literally versus figuratively and metaphorically. But it really is a reflection of real life. And that's what makes it so important. Now moving from the 1980s to the 18th century. A modest proposal by Jonathan Swift, his very, very, very famous satirical essay about how delicious babies are, particularly when they're Irish. Component one, a point of view. Jonathan Swift was Irish, Anglo-Irish, but the point of view of the essay is sort of a parody of, of a horrible, soulish British person who's complicit in the system and saying, oh, how should we behave? So even though his personal point of view was as someone who would be deeply affected by this personally and, and as an Irish person, he doesn't write it as, hey, I'm an Irish guy, here's what I think. He kind of does a really unflattering and brutally funny impression, I guess, of some horrific British-English person saying like, ew, how should we deal with these 
these terrible Irish people. What should we do? And it's a really sharp point of view, particularly considering the people who are going to be reading this essay probably are in that that mindset. They probably are in that point of view. So he's sort of insinuating himself with the crowd. He's sort of gaining their trust in a way, gaining their friendship, and then suddenly cannibalism! It's just perfect. It's just a a great uh, way to attack people where they live. It's it's a step beyond let them eat cake. Let them eat babies. Let them eat babies. Let's look at number two, the target. Now, the essay is all about eating Irish children, but the Irish aren't really the target of this essay. The target is England and England's government. The target is these awful landowners who are exploiting the Irish. He's basically calling British people cannibals, which is pretty badass. That's pretty cool. Um, something to say. Well, Jonathan Swift had a lot to say, and he was pretty blunt about saying it. He's sounding off on England's brutal policies that treat the Irish as something subhuman. He's saying, you guys are treating them as subhuman. It wouldn't be that different to literally treat them like animals. And part four, absurdity. Cannibalism is just shocking and taboo enough to be beyond the already brutal policies of the day. If he'd talked about, hey, why don't we just round them up and shoot them, it wouldn't have been as effective, because honestly, there were probably a lot of people at the time who would have said, yeah, absolutely, that's a good idea. There are probably people today who would still agree with that. Uh, yeah, just uh, look up the troubles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But cannibalism is so taboo and so weird and so absurd that that's really the only thing that could have worked because it's so completely shocking that it pushes things beyond the the, the ordinary and gives you space to be shocked and offended and space to laugh, too, because he's really going in details about just... The ways of preparing Irish children and like when you can buy them, when they're when they're good eaten, potential recipe ideas, that sort of thing. And finally, part five, a heart. The the point of a modest proposal isn't obviously that Irish babies are indeed good eaten, or and he's not just trying to say, I I I I said something gross. It's that. Basically calling out the English to stop being so brutal in their policies towards the Irish. And Swift even outright explains what England should do rather than continuing to be awful. So let's move on to talk about Brass Eye's infamous Pete Geddon episode. Now, that was the clip we used at the beginning. Uh, Brass Eye was a brilliant satirical sort of news style program by Chris Morris that uh, ran on in the UK back in the early 2000s on Channel 4. And it was perfectly edited. It looked very much like a really sleazy talk show network news program. And they ran one episode that just really shocked and offended the nation. It was referred to as Pete Geddon. And it was this brilliant, brilliant spoof of the over-the-top kind of hysterical British tabloid journalism, if you want to call it journalism, that's kind of being generous, um, and and their way of presenting um, sexual abuse scandals at that time. Now, Matt, could you fill us in for people who aren't British on a little bit of cultural context to this special? Like, what led to this culturally? Sure thing. 
we've seen a little bit of the kind of hysteria the episode is lampooning here with things like To Catch a Predator and uh, Chris Hansen. And there's a reason why that show's not on the air anymore is because they were fucking up actual legal methods and also a number of people on it killed themselves. So for it to be worse than that is kind of saying something, but it really was like the UK media, especially the right wing media was just in a frenzy over the idea of pedophilia and child molesters running rampant. The news of the world, which you might know from the phone hacking scandal about it, geez, what was that about a decade ago? I think at this point, they ran an article that, you know, named and shamed known pedophiles and basically doxed them. But they had a little bit of a trouble and it turns out that a bunch of the people they listed as pedophiles were actually pediatricians. And there are actual stories about people going and storming pediatricians' homes because of this article in spray painting, like, pedo on their wall or their house and trashing their home and their car. Again, pediatricians are child doctors, not child molesters, in case that wasn't clear. Right. So it sounds a little bit like kind of an equivalent to the 1980s satanic panic. So again, for young people, back in the 1980s, there was unfortunately like a mainstream kind of Pizzagate conspiracy theory. There were these really bizarre rash of news stories about teachers and daycare providers being in satanic cults that like raped kids and killed them in secret subterranean underground caves underneath schools to sacrifice them to the devil and it turned out it was all like completely made up there the stories were absolutely bizarre and fanciful i mean the kids were they were literally like witch trials these kids were testifying that their teachers had summoned demons and but and it would almost be funny except people really got arrested for this people went to jail for this it would be like if pizzagate were taken seriously by the court system it's horrible and I mean, later these people were, were cleared finally and released, but a lot of lives were ruined because of this stuff. It was, it was terrible. And of course the media ran with it because what a juicy story. Like satanic pedophile conspiracies, that sells papers. People want to hear about that. That's really exciting. Um, and the reality of, of pedophilia and child molestation is usually not these great, exciting, grand devil conspiracies, but just like, Oh, a, a, a creepy guy in the family doing gross stuff. And it's a lot more like close to home and less exciting and just a lot sadder. And, and that doesn't really sell papers, really. Right. It's same dance, different tune. Yeah. So we, we're, we're, uh, we want to stress that we're taking the hopefully not very controversial attitude that, uh, pedophilia is bad we're not fans um, that you shouldn't have sex with kids um you shouldn't do that but th that this whole weird media side of things was definitely not a great way to to deal with it and not an appropriate way to handle what is a really sensitive really serious topic all right so in the middle of this brass eye created this absolutely wild episode parodying this sort of media response and it was dubbed Pedageddon, and it it, it 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 was interesting. Let, let's talk about it a little bit more. Uh, let's start with the point of view. What's the point of view of this wild, crazy 
Petergeddon Press Eye special. The point of view is very much as a member of the media, both in a fictional way, because Brass Eye isn't an actual news magazine show. It's a, it's a comedy program, but it is still in the media. It's still on channel four going out to an entire nation. So there is a small slice of complicitness in it, just because um, sort of like in the last season of BoJack, when Diane is explaining the thing about reinforcing views and how sometimes even if a, a show is saying this guy is bad, it still kind of normalizes that bad behavior. And I think Brass Eye kind of flirts with that a little bit, but again, ramps it up so it's obviously ridiculous. Right. Right. And something I find interesting, too, is that the special doesn't take the point of view of a victim of a of a sexual offense or a, of a perpetrator, but just as this really gross media vulture that's there to capitalize on it and really titillate the audience with it. Basically, it's trying to sell papers while telling you that it's trying to make a difference in the world when actually it's actively making things worse. Like the thing about rounding up all the children and putting them in a school and then fitting them with... Uh, exploding canisters like they do with bank robbers. So if a pedophile does grab a kid, it will explode covering the kid in a indelible ink that will hopefully gross the pedophile out and make them go for a more attractive target, I guess. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, and that's a nice segue to point two, the target. Who are the target? of Pete again. Who are the real targets? Are we targeting pedophiles? Because, I mean, that that's kind of an easy target. I mean, they're, they're shit and they deserve it, but that's not really the, the target of this special. Now, this one is all about the media, and that's honestly why it got such an outcry, is because the show was calling out the media, and it turns out the media doesn't really like that when you call them out for being awful. But we'll, we'll get into that a little bit better, a little bit later, because there's some really great stories about the media's reaction to the Brass Eye episode. But the episode itself is very clear not to make fun of victims of sexual violence. And it doesn't even really make fun of pedophiles themselves. I mean, they're the, they're the butt of the joke, I suppose, but they're not really, they're more an instrument to make fun of the media rather than the target it's themselves. Right. Like when there's a bit where they're having some, some presenter explain a pedophile genetically has more in common with a crab than with you or me. I mean, the target is not so much the pedophile, but as like, what the fuck? Who would even say something that completely bizarro? Like yeah. a crab? A crab. There's no real evidence for it, but it is scientific fact. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines from that. And and those and for those who don't know, most of Brass Eye is scripted. There are a few bits like that bit with the crab where they went to actual celebrities and and occasionally an MP, occasionally a like an elected official and had him say like pedophiles are secretly crabs in human form and just totally off the wall shit meaning it in all seriousness yeah it's all they're, they're saying stuff 
with such conviction that they should really know better, but they don't because a guy in a fancy suit with a camera and a microphone is telling them to say it. Right. So all critical thinking just goes out the window. Right. Now that brings us to part three, something to say. This uh, special had a whole lot to say. What was it saying? It's a one step beyond version of what the British media was already like. And it's saying that this is doing much more harm than good. And it's pointing out how a lot of the times this portrayal of pedophilia and sexual abuse and sexual violence in the media is like, it seems like it's meant to titillate the audience because interviewers will have these people on who were victimized in these horrible ways and ask them to describe it in like really, really upsetting levels of detail. And I'm thinking that can't be good for them to sit in front of an audience and have to tell the specific anatomical details of what happened to them for somebody's entertainment. It's hard enough to do that for an investigator or for a therapist, but for like some creepy news guy at a desk and, and for people watching at home, like to be expected to do that, that's pretty gross. That's probably not great psychologically. And it's not there to like educate people or protect people. It's so clearly there just for some really kind of gross form of entertainment. It should be noted that journalism schools, J schools, do teach their students about uh, empathetic ways to interview victims and how not to poke them until they pour out the horrible things that happened to them. But between you and me, I don't know how many of those reporters actually really pay attention to that unit. Yeah, because so many of them do that anyway. And the other horrifying side about it is, like, the audience eats it up. Audiences fucking love that shit. They might condemn it, but they're going to watch it. They're going to listen to it. And that's this other horrifying aspect to it. It's very good for ratings. So let's go to point four, absurdity. Um, pedophilia, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that uh, child molestation isn't really funny, uh, is, is bad, it's sad, it's, it's not great. But they managed to make a special about child molestation to be really, really funny by making it completely bizarro. Like that wonderfully famous bit about putting a pedophile into space to keep him away from children. But oh my god, wouldn't you know it, a child ended up in the space capsule. Like, oh, it's Murphy's Law. This is the one thing we didn't want to happen. The one thing! Literally the only thing we were trying to not happen and it <laughs> happened. Oh. <laughs> like, there's nothing funny about a kid being molested, but somehow when it's like a kid being molested in space... Like, it's bizarre enough to be like, okay, this isn't real. There's enough of a layer of weirdness in between to the point where, like, you can kind of laugh about that without wanting to die. And that episode is just full of absolute madness. There's that one bit where a guy puts his children in a filing cabinet to keep them safe from pedophiles. There's a pedophile dressed as a school trying to trick children to walk into him. Um... <laughs> There's absolutely just bizarre, weird, over-the-top bits that take things into such an extreme that it takes a topic that is generally extremely unfunny and makes it distant enough that you really can't help but laugh. I like that in between the setups that are absurd, they're also absurdities in the stuff that reflects actual reporting, like the internet lingo, the uh, <laughs> pipe-to-pipe bushman, meaning that there's a pedophile in a bush 
waiting to, to signal to other pedophiles that a child is in the area. <laughs> or Baltimore, which is also a 80s one-hit wonder, by the way, for those of you who didn't quite get that joke, because it took me a while to get the reference to Baltimore, <laughs> too. They're, I don't think they actually had a hit on this side of the Atlantic. I think yeah. they were a UK one-hit wonder. I'm not familiar with Baltimore at all. I am not either. I just know that they're a one-hit wonder, and that's about it. But it's still, again... An absurd reference, but also that it's played out to... I don't remember... Do you remember what Baltimore, quote-unquote, means? Is it... No. It, it's another one about, you know, probably, you know, signaling pedophiles that there's a child, or maybe there's... That there's a group of five children or something. I don't, I don't exactly remember. But again, we've all seen real news stories about the secret internet lingo that your kids are using when they don't want you to know what they're, they're actually t- chatting about. Right, and it's become a meme, like, well, this actually means that, and LOL actually means loaded over lard or something, <laughs> like, just all these bizarre old person fears of, here's what your kids are really talking about on the internet. It's just amazingly effective, th- this level of absurdity. I mean, it's a topic that's really hard to pull off well, and they managed to make it just bonkers enough to just work magnificently well. Yeah, and and there's also a few times where that actually even backfired in the real world. I don't want to, I right. because it's a brilliant scene and it's such a good point where uh, they're talking about pedophilia and the art world. They have an MP there to talk about whether various works of art are obscene, and there's like <laughs> one where it's like a gigantic <laughs> girl's head cut from a bread advertisement type of thing, just like 50s wholesome girl. And then there's a tiny, tiny cutout of a woman's body from like a Playboy. And it's, you know, oh, is this obscene? Because it's combining children with sexuality. And I think that one wasn't obscene, but there was one where it was a doll that had a dildo tucked in its diaper to look like it had a massive cock. That was sort of obscene, but the guy said, well, it's probably more obscene if you put... Her head, referring to the, the the bread girl's head, on the body of the dildo doll. And that would be obscene. And then, of course, Chris right. Morris, as the interviewer, does so, like, bashes the thing and folds it back and shows it to him. And then afterwards, the MP even said he was so shocked and appalled that he was actually considering charging Chris Morris in Channel 4 with showing him obscene material. <laughs> I, I don't believe that went anywhere, but it's still, it's still absurd. To say, wait, how about now? Is it obscene now? L- let me, <laughs> let me glue, let me glue a dick to it. Is it obscene now? How about now? What if I glued another dick on? How obscene is it? Just totally bizarre conversation <laughs> in the wonderfully British way. All right. Now let's talk about the final component here. Heart. There's a, there, as like horrifying as this topic is, Peter Geddon has a real heart to it in this really bizarre, weird, twisted way. There's, is a sense of right and wrong. And what I've felt a lot from it was there's a sense of horror and disgust at how news media turns this really sensitive, upsetting topic into a spectacle instead of treating it with the sensitivity and maturity that it really deserves. Now, Matt, you, you told me earlier that there was a big public outcry against this special, but curiously, a victim's organization was actually really in favor of it. There was a huge outcry after the special, mostly from the media, 
there were, you know, some some people did write into Ofcom, which is the basically the UK's version of the FCC. And eventually, like, they decided that it wasn't obscene. It wasn't, there was no problem with uh, having broadcast it. Everything was fine. But there were, like, loads of news stories urging people to write right. into Ofcom and talking about how awful it was. And there's even a famous uh, spread from, I, I want to say it was the Daily Mail, but I could be mistaken. It's one of those. It's one of those, like, Rupert Murdoch-owned reactionary right-wing rags. Yeah, and on the right-hand page is a piece you know, condemning Chris Morris and Brass Eye and Channel 4 for having the horrible taste to run this uh, horrible show. But on the opposite side, on the left side, there's a large picture of a then 15-year-old Charlotte Church, who's a uh, British singer, all about how she's sprouting breasts now. And the headline is, what is it? She's a big girl now. Yes, and she's looking chest swell. Yeah. Yeah, so... Literally on the opposite page, it's just like page 10, oh, look at these disgusting perverts at Chris Morris, and right next to it, page 9, is like, look at this 15-year-old's tits, check that out. It's shameless. And I'll put the scan of that uh, in the show notes, so if you want to go and see that, just go to the uh, the Kitty Steezes article on this episode of the podcast, and you'll be able to see it. But with all of that outcry from the news media, victims groups actually praised the episode and said it was a very well done condemnation of the media and was very sympathetic to victims. And it really is. The whole point of the show is to condemn the media's reaction to pedophilia stories and amping them up and using them as like reading scrabbers and ways to sell papers and all this stuff rather than actually maybe giving some real help or information or anything. I mean, that's part of why the story's so effective, but that's also probably why it offended so many broadcasters and reporters, too, because it made them look at themselves in a way that they probably didn't want to look at themselves. Yeah, and also, too, it, it kind of laid bare a lot of their tricks. <laughs> Absolutely. In a really, really brutal, blatant way. And it was absolutely brilliant. Um, you can usually find this special on YouTube, so you might want to check it out, because it's totally worth watching. And the other episodes are really, really funny, too. There's one about the decline of civilization and crime, and that's really, really funny. There was one about, I don't know, gay submarines or something. That was pretty bonkers. That was great. Or there's the one where they come up with this anti-drug panic based on a completely fake drug they're calling cake from Czechoslovakia, and it's just this giant cake that they've decorated to look like a pill, and they're having MPs and celebrities and self-important people holding it up and saying, cake is a made-up drug. It's very dangerous. It's wonderful. Did you know that as part of that episode, MPs actually submitted a bill into Parliament about banning cake? That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's good. Yes, please check out Chris Morris. Check out Brassai. He's made a new film that's coming out this year pretty soon. I don't know much about it other than it premiered at South by Southwest. Um, He's done one other feature-length film, Four Lions, which is about terrorism. 
And much like the Peter Geddon episode, it really has a lot of heart, even though it's about such a brutal topic. And again, highly recommend it. So let's move on from very successful dark humor to less successful dark humor. Now, you can't necessarily have a recipe for good dark humor, but you can usually start to understand why an attempt at dark humor is failing when it lacks one of those five elements. And this is why a lot of stereotypical sort of edgy edgelord humor fails. It's that there's usually a poorly chosen target, like either you're mad at someone who doesn't really warrant it or you're just kind of equally mad at everybody and, and it becomes just kind of incoherent. Like, fuck you, government. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Fuck you too, mom. Like, what? What? I don't I don't know. Fuck you, girl who didn't go out with me in high school. Like, wait, no, dude, dude chill, <laughs> chill. Or it's heartless. We see a lot of this in sort of right-wing shock comedy where it's kind of heartless. People sort of laugh at it, but to me it doesn't strike me as a genuine laugh so much as that sort of cruel conspiratorial snickering that you do when you don't find this funny, but people you dislike find it unfunny, so you're gonna laugh. So here's an example of that. A guy named Nick DiPaolo. He's one of approximately a, a million dudes who have a comedy special that's probably called Trigger Warning or Safe Space or some variation of that. He released a poster in which he's flipping off a bunch of bad SJW people who represent what he considers their cultural enemy. Like, So there's like a crying white girl, there's a girl in hipster glasses with a Me Too sign, and there are some Black Lives Matter activists, and he's flipping them the bird like, fuck you guys. I won't be intimidated by you people. I'm not going to kowtow to your bullshit. But unfortunately, one of the activists in that photo that he's flipping off is a Black Lives Matter activist who was shot dead in 2018 under mysterious circumstances, and the police just have no idea who's responsible, and I'm sure it's purely coincidental that this guy often protested against police brutality. I'm sure it's a coincidence. I'm sure there's nothing else going on under the surface. <laughs> Uh. So, um, naturally, after this poster came out, there was a big public outcry because making fun of a murder victim who might have been murdered by the police, it's not a good look. Um, it's not, it, it comes across as heartless, and it's not a great target either. Like, okay, hypersensitive ultra-woke people are a pretty solid target. Like, they can be really, really annoying. And if you go after, like, hypersensitive, super woke people, you're going to get some laughs and some really genuine laughs because even to a leftist, those folks can be really, really annoying and ridiculous sometimes. Like, it's an easy target, but it's an appropriate target for sure. A lot of people dislike them, and I would argue that people who make, like, six figures a year writing op-eds about man-spreading, they're probably not in a press class. They're, they're doing pretty good. It's a pretty solid target. But a dude who was murdered for standing up for what I consider very reasonable convictions, which is that racism is bad and police brutality is bad, saying fuck you to that guy, that he's not a good target for your wrath. He doesn't really deserve that level of disdain. Quite frankly, he's a bigger badass than some shitty comedian who's just mad that he can't say the N-word at a dinner party. <laughs> so that is why that failed. That's why Nick DiPaolo sucks. That's why, that's why his humor fails. That being said, I'm sure he'll make a ton of money because people are terrible. So, that's all for this episode. In our next episode, we're going to talk about something less controversial. The importance of reading books other than goddamn Harry Potter. Thank you for listening. This has been Right Good with R.S. Benedict, hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. 
This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood, R-I-T-E-G-U-D, at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. KittySneezes.com in color.